This morning we're in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. As we dive into Mark, uh, I'll kind of set the stage for why we're back or why we're starting in Mark chapter 11 in just a few moments. But before we do that, um, let me ask you a question. If you lived in a kingdom, how would you expect the king to travel? If you lived in a kingdom, how would you expect the king to travel? What presentation, what preparation, what travel, what protection, what would you expect? Uh, Let's just kind of paint the picture for you in a modern day. Uh, What goes into, and uh, this is, I don't care about your political opinions or views in this moment, but what goes into uh, the presidential motorcade for the United States? So what goes into the president of the United States getting anywhere? Uh, and so let me unpack it for you, kind of give you a picture of this, and it'll, it'll make sense, I promise, in just a little bit. Um, the presidential motorcade, which is the whole string of transportation entourage, uh, consists of anywhere from 40 to 50 vehicles. Um, personal vehicles with high-tech security weapons, equipment, communication systems, r- redirection, action plan teams, medical teams, medical supplies, custom private heavy armored vehicles, rented vehicles, armored and unarmored vehicles, law enforcement, uh, all kinds of stuff. But a typical presidential presidential motorcade setup looks like this. It starts with a route car. It's typically uh, a just local police officer vehicle that drives the route uh, ahead of the entire motorcade. And it's just kind of checking to make sure the roadway's clear. It's communicating back to the people in the, the rest of the motorcade, hey, here's what you're going to encounter in a mile. Here's what's coming up. So they're communicating some information, uh, just kind of taking the route beforehand. Directly following that, you have sweepers, which is like typically motorcycle police, and there's typically a dozen to, to multiple dozen of them, where they're driving in a herd uh, in front of the motorcade. And those guys' job um, is to maintain the speed of the entourage of the of the motorcade and so you'll see them stop in the middle of intersections and keep cars from coming so the presidential motorcade doesn't stop it just keeps on moving you'll see them uh, redirect traffic and do all kinds of things uh, you'll, if they're on the highway you'll see them pull over in front of an on-ramp and stop and stop every car from coming so that no one gets in the way or intersects with the motorcade so you have these sweepers and then they're also communicating, not just uh, maintaining speed, but communicating information along the way. They're radioing back, hey, hey, we got this road blocked. Hey, we got this uh, suspicious car over here. All that kind of stuff. So you have sweepers. And then you have the lead car. The lead car is the, the first one of the actual murder, motorcade. They're not like the guys who are going on in front. It's the lead car. And their whole job is to guide and to provide a little bit of a buffer between the, the actual first vehicles of the, the protection detail to uh, the, the, the front of the motorcade. So it's typically some form of armored car that has uh, some special agents in it of some kind, and they're the first car in the motorcade. And directly behind that is the stagecoach, which is the, there's some weird names in here. Like some of this, you've ever seen those things, you're like, man, I wish I could have come up with some names because there's some cool names. So you have the stagecoach, and the stagecoach is the president's vehicle and his team. Uh, and, and the vehicle that the president, the presidential limousine, um, is called the Beast. Also, kind of a cool name. Maybe you don't want to call it that, whatever, it's fine. Uh, it's a very, very, very high-tech protection vehicle. So much that the, the Beast has its own independent air supply. 
Uh, which means there's no in and out circulation of airflow. Uh, the air in the, the presidential limo is secured and pressurized as its own cabin, like you would imagine an airplane. It, it, it works that way. It's, it's got its own air supply. It's armored with all the armor that you could put in it, and it also carries in it uh, the president's blood supply. Like they put in the presidential limo the blood in case the president needs a blood transfusion inside the beast. Uh, and then there's also not just one beast, but the stagecoach is made up of multiple of these beasts, uh, some as decoys, some carrying other personnel, cabinet members, other, uh, other parts of the presidential's group that are going along the way. So you have, sometimes there'll be like six, seven, eight of these beasts that are in the, in the, uh, the motorcade. And directly following the beast is the halfback, which sounds cool. I'm like, football going on? Okay, the halfback sounds cool. Uh, the halfback is an armored vehicle that's directly following the stagecoach filled with specialized elite personnel from the, the uh, Secret Service. And, and they are the first line of defense. They follow close behind, typically, either the tailgate of this SUV or the back window is open, and there's a fully decked out armed uh, special agent from the Secret Service sitting in even the back, not protected, looking out the rear, and then the whole thing's full of all the gadgets and bells and whistles and armor and, and top-of-the-line stuff for those guys to be able to provide in the situation of an occurrence protection that the president or anyone else in the, the, the stagecoach uh, might need help. Uh, directly following the hatchback, or sorry, halfback, hatchback, uh, is the watchtower. Again, kind of cool name. What, what's the watchtower? The watchtower is an, a mobile high-tech radar system. It's a vehicle that is an, a, a rolling radar system to watch over the entire area where the motorcade is traveling. They're, they're literally doing like, like in-the-sky radar for the presidential motorcade, and sometimes this also includes an actual helicopter that travels over the top of the motorcade. So pretty cool name and functional uh, at the same time. Uh, and then directly following the watchtowers, you have the support and the control vehicles, and these carry high-valued staff vehicles, cabinet members, uh, pr uh, a specialized, specific doctor for the president and his private personal um, special security. Following the, the support and the control vehicles is the Hawkeye Renegade. Oh, cool. I mean, like, for real. Like, really, we got, like, Avengers picking these names. So we have the Hawkeye Renegade, and the Hawkeye Renegade, Renegade is a special elite group of Secret Service operators, and they are the counter-assault vehicles. Uh, so if something really, really goes wrong, and we need, like, guys to get in there and do counteroffensive maneuvers to protect the president or whatnot, that's this crew. They are the offensive unit in the presidential motorcade, and there's typically multiple armored vehicles filled with these, these guys. Uh, and then you have the ID car, which isn't like I'm finding out who you are, but it's the, the ID car is the intelligence defense vehicle, which does a lot of communication stuff. Uh, and then you have the hazardous material mitigation unit, which is like, come on, like we're just we're just going and going, we're just making stuff up now. The 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 hazardous material mitigation unit is uh, it's a high tech gear uh, truck filled with sensors to detect nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. It's literally a car that's just a giant truck that's just sensors that sniff in the air to find out if there's something dangerous in the air that's following the president's motorcade. Following that, you have press vans. They typically get boring 15-passenger uh, vans. Uh, they have the communi communication agency vehicles and then their own personal ambulance and then rear guard, which is a whole bunch of law enforcement that are kind of picking up the rear. That's how the President of the United States travels. It's quite extensive. And not only to put it this way, uh, also that that whole entourage travels wherever he travels. And so if they're going to go to another city... That whole entourage, minus the local law enforcement, get on these massive military transport planes and they fly in and they unload that whole entourage at the airport, wherever the president's going to land in his personal Air Force One plane. Uh, and if he's going to go to multiple locations in that city, they have multiple setups of this entire thing. So you can see, like, if the president arrives in Dallas, and uh, maybe they learned a lesson. If the president arrives in Dallas, um, <laughs> 
and he's going to go to Fort Worth and going to go to uh, Oak Cliff or go, and going to go to Plano while he's there for some events, there's three entire motorcades. Not one that's going to just like hit each one. Three entire motorcades. One to go here and back. Unload. He gets in this one. Entire different crew. Goes to that location and then gets another one and goes to that location. So you're talking about this massive entourage of high-tech weapons and security security and, and plans out the wazoo for any possible situation or scenario, uh, it's quite an ordeal. Uh, I had a friend at, at a former church, I was a youth pastor out, who was on, on, the, on President Bush's Secret Service detail. And uh, he just described, like, if you could think of the scenario and possibility, there's a plan for it. Uh, anytime the president goes anywhere. And, and, and it's quite an entourage, quite a significant situation. And that's just to get somewhere. That doesn't even include the security detail wherever he's going. Like the whole team and entourage that are doing all the things to make sure that when he gets wherever he's going, nothing happens and that he's safe. And so why do I unpack this whole thing? Why? Because that's, uh, you could call it, and I don't think any of us would like this, but you could call it like the modern day king, uh, the, the leader the, uh, of our nation, um, that's how he travels, how he enters a city, how he enters an event, how he goes somewhere. It's quite the entourage. It's huge. And as we get to Mark chapter 11, and we look at what's called the triumphal entry of Jesus, it's quite different. But Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, the king's city, as the king, quite different than you would expect a king to enter. Uh, to put the way Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem uh, in a modern day like uh, example would be as if the president arrived on inauguration day on a borrowed new children's bicycle. Like that's the equivalent. Uh, there, there's no entourage. He doesn't have uh, like security detail and all this stuff going on. He's not in some high-tech vehicles. He's on a borrowed but new children's bicycle. And it might seem on the inside, or just looking on the outside, uh, a little unimpressive for the way that the king should enter the city. But in this passage of Scripture where Mark unpacks the way that Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, the king's city, where the king of Israel would sit and rule and reign, Underneath and inside it are unpacked some beautiful, powerful declarations about who Jesus is. And it screams very loudly this. Jesus is the king. Not Jesus is a king, but Jesus is all caps, T-H-E, the king. And so that's the main point for this whole sermon. That's the whole point of this passage is a beautiful, intentionally orchestrated by the power and, and work of God display of Jesus, the Son of God, as the King of God's people. And so to kind of catch us up where we're at, not like until the whole story of Mark up to chapter 10, but why we're starting in Mark chapter 11, is this. Trailview, as a church, we started when we planted in... September 2020 in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, our mission and vision at Trailview is this. We want to be a people who find our greatest delight in Jesus and we make disciples. And so uh, we wanted to start as a church with our gaze fixed on Jesus. To where as we gathered as a church, we looked to Jesus every single day. And, and Mark, the Gospel of Mark, does a beautiful job of, in a very intense, fast, and immediate, he says that word a lot, uh, way to turn our gaze to see Jesus. And so towards that same aim that we would delight in Jesus every day, um, we, that we would find our pleasure and satisfaction for our souls in Him, uh, that we want to, as a people, turn our gaze to see Jesus. Like, uh, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we would behold His glory, the glory of the Lord, the, the image of God in Jesus. He is the full image of God. And in that we would become more like Him, that we would be transformed. So we, we've been on this long journey through Mark, um, just to clarify, not every single Sunday for the last almost three years in Mark. Um, in the fall, we have walked through Mark. We get to Advent, we take a break. Uh, we do some different stuff in the spring, like we walk through Ecclesiastes, and then we walk through the Ephesians this last year. Uh, and so 
And then in the fall, when we get back to our normal school rhythms in the fall, we pick up where we left off in Mark. And so that's why we're in Mark chapter 11 today, is because we left off here last November. Um, and so, so that's where we're at, but all to the aim of us gazing at the beauty of Jesus, our God, and beholding his glory. Uh, and so um, let's dive into Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1, uh, and see what it has to say to us this morning. It says this in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of them standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said to them, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had uh, cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so Jesus in the story, uh, in the whole story of Mark, so if you weren't familiar, the Gospel of Mark, just like Matthew and Luke and John, are these, these narratives telling the biography of Jesus. And so uh, at this point, Jesus has done a whole lot of teaching, a whole lot of miracles, and he has set his face. That's the way the Bible talks about it. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. And this isn't just a, oh, he's going to go to Jerusalem. This is a, he has turned his gaze towards his destination that will be his final destination for his rule and, or his time on earth uh, here at this time. And, and so he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's not just another city. Uh, Jerusalem is a significant city. It's the city of the king. It's where the king would rule and reign. It's where the, the throne was. It's also the city where the temple was, where, where people annually and multiple times throughout a year um, made pilgrimages to worship, to sacrifice, and to be in the presence of God as he dwelt in the inner part of the temple. Uh, and, and this isn't the first time that Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem. So, so this uh, set his gaze towards Jerusalem isn't just like, oh, we're going to go there again this year like we did last year or six months ago or whatever. No, this is a different kind of set his gaze towards the city of Jerusalem, uh, but it's not the first time. Uh, see, Jesus is a good Jew, and he was circumcised in the temple on the eighth day. Uh, he entered the temple at, with his family uh, as a kid. There's some stories that tell you about that in, in the Gospels. Uh, and as an adult, he regularly went to the temple and worshipped. So he's familiar with the city. Uh, the, the, the leaders of the Jewish people are familiar with Jesus and were likely at this point in his ministry keeping tabs. They were likely keeping tabs on where Jesus was as best as they could and would be aware that he comes into Jerusalem. But this time he enters the city a little bit differently. Uh, history would show us, or at least when you read through the Gospels, that Jesus normally just walked into the city. It would be like you drove into the city in your car. He got there by normal, everyday means. But this time, it's different. This time, Jesus enters the city uh, in a very unique way. Uh, in a very unique way that clues us into this one truth that we've talked about already. Jesus is the king. Uh, he sends his two disciples ahead of him into the city. Picks, picks two, I don't know why, we don't know which two, it just says two. It says, hey, you guys, go into the city. When you get there, you're going to find a cult. Uh, which is a, a baby donkey, a young donkey. It's not quite old enough um, for normal work or whatnot, but it's, it's, it's a young donkey. Go get it, bring it back. Um, and, and when they come back with the donkey, uh, they lay their coats on it. So imagine we don't wear cloaks, but it's like putting on your outer jacket. So uh, it's, no one's wearing an outer jacket right now because it's miserable in Texas. Uh, but put us in... March, because that might have been when this happened. And in March, it's cold. So you wear a jacket. Some days it's cold. Maybe it's not. But nonetheless, you wear an outer jacket. Uh, and so they take off their outer jackets, which were used as blankets if they were going to lay down and sleep somewhere, or a pillow of some kind. or It was used for all kinds of stuff, a curtain, whatnot. So they take off their jackets, and they lay them on this donkey, this young colt donkey. Uh, and, and then Jesus gets on the donkey. 
Again, he's never done this before. Uh, and so he poses questions. Okay, why did Jesus get on the donkey? He's just like, hey man, we've been walking for a while. We're coming from Galilee. Like, I just don't want to walk anymore. Y'all go get me a donkey. Like, like is that what's going on here? He's just tired of walking? Um, is he just tired? No, there's more going on than Jesus is just tired and wants a ride. Um, uh, when, uh, not only that, he gets on the donkey and starts heading towards the city. But when they get to the city, uh, most likely the crowd that is traveling before and after with in the this big group of people that he's been teaching along the way, as they're traveling into the city, uh, this crowd begins to take notice and throw their coats down on the ground in front of Jesus in the road. So you have this crowd of people in front of Jesus that are throwing their coats down in front of him. Uh, there's some who have gotten branches, probably palm branches. We don't necessarily we call it Palm Sunday, but they're getting these branches from the field and they're, they're laying them down on the road in front of Jesus. Uh, we kind of tend, if you've ever been in the church, like world where they do pageants and displays and those kinds of things. Typically, we look at like people waving branches. They laid them down. They, didn't, they weren't fanning Jesus from the summer heat. They laid them down on the ground. And so they lay them down along with their coats along the, along the street. Um, but it's not just these visible actions that they're doing. They're also shouting some things. And, and they're not like casually whispering them to one another. They're shouting these things at Jesus or out loud. They're shouting the word Hosanna, which is one word in English and a lot of words in Hebrew. But nonetheless, we'll get there in a little bit. They're shouting Hosanna. And they're also shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're also shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So you see this crowd um, acting in a particular way um, that was unique to Jesus entering the temple, uh, speaking in a particularly unique way that is uh, different than Jesus has normally or anyone else has entered into uh, the city, not the temple. Uh, and, and so it's, it's interesting. There's some different dynamics going on here. Uh, I do want us to see something here, though. It was common specifically at this time uh, in the year when the people would enter the city of Jerusalem for one of these phrases to be said. Uh, so uh, Jesus is entering the, the city of Jerusalem at Passover. Most Jews in the area would go to the city of Jerusalem for Passover, to observe Passover. Um, and, and when they would enter the city of Jerusalem, uh, a common phrase they would say to one another is this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a common greeting that as you would enter the city of Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate with your family or friends or whoever, uh, that they would say, hey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and, and that's a weird thing for us. Like That's a very Eastern, Middle Eastern cultural thing, not just at that time, but those kinds of verbal common greetings where, where we hear or, or see people do those kinds of things. Uh, it's not something very common here. Maybe we should pick it up. Maybe the Connect team at Trailview should just say that to all of you when you walk in the room. Maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe I'm not in charge of those things. So cool. <laughs> um, um, uh, so, but it was a common practice for people when they would enter the city of Jerusalem for Passover to say to one another, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Meaning, blessed are you to come into the city of our God and our King to gather in his temple and to worship. Um, and, and so that's what happens. They, they, they say these things. There's all these things happening. Um, <clears throat> but along the way, there's also some interesting things that happen. And Mark tells us that Jesus goes to the temple. That he goes straight to the temple. He looks around, and then he leaves. Um, and there's some interesting things, and you, you may be aware of if you, if you ever read the Gospels in concert, like reading all of them at one time and seeing what the other ones emphasize or bring out or whatnot, uh, we see that Jesus does go to the temple when he enters the city. Uh, this is specifically from, from Luke and, and Matthew's perspective where they tell the story. Uh, but he doesn't just go in the city and look around. He doesn't just go into the temple and look around. Uh, if you read in Matthew and Luke, he goes into the temple and does just a little bit more than look around. Uh, he goes into the temple and in holy anger, yeah, that's a thing, he rearranges the temple. Uh, and he rearranges the temple, fires the staff, kicks them out, whips, flips tables, and declares, my father's house is a house of prayer, not of commerce. See, Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus goes into the temple and does this. He just says he goes to the temple and then he leaves because it's nighttime. Why? Why do we think that Mark leaves out this very fascinating moment? We, I mean, you may not be the person who's drawn to it. You think about in high school. There's a fight. Fight, fight. 
quiet and everybody gathers around. Or, or there's a car wreck and everybody calls, a car wreck and everybody calls them rubberneckers, the people who slow down to look around. It's kind of a weird name. We come up with something else. But like, uh, it, this, like we're drawn to NASCAR because of the crash or whatever uh, kind of thing. If you're not, then sorry. But like, uh, like we're drawn to that. And so our minds naturally would go to Jesus went in and did that in the temple. And so Mark leaves that portion out, and I don't think he does it in neglect, but I think he does it to emphasize something. I think he does that intentionally, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to emphasize Jesus' entry into the city, not what Mark and uh, Matthew and Luke emphasize, which is Jesus' high priesthood who would enter the temple and restore it, even though he says it's going to be destroyed in three days, rise again. And in that, he emphasizes Jesus' kingship, that he is the king. And so there's some things along the way about Jesus as the king that are revealed in this story. Beyond just the unique, he's never entered the city this way before, is this just like a uh, the, all the cards, uh, all the stars aligned moment, and like people just decided to do this one day. Like, what's going on here? What's actually happening here? And so, there's three things that are revealed in this passage to us uh, about Jesus as this King. And so, we're going to walk through these briefly. Um, I'm probably not going to read all the scripture references, but I'll throw them out your way so you can read them if you want to later, just because of time. Uh, but there's three things. The first one is this: and Jesus is the promised King. The second one will be he's the humble king, and the third one is he's the sacrificial king. And so, so let's start with Jesus as the promised king. And so what in this passage reveals to us that Jesus isn't just some self-proclaimed king, that he's not just going to be, spoiler alert, the crucified king whom Pilate writes, behold, king of the Jews above him, and all the Jews say, don't write that, and Pilate says, I've written what I've written. I think cluing us into the pilot was a little bit curious, if not maybe believed, that Jesus was the king. So what do we see here in this passage that does reveal, that pulls the curtain back on who Jesus actually is as the promised king? We see the first one is this, the colt donkey. The colt donkey is not normal. Just to clarify, it's not normal. It's not normal for anyone, and it's particularly not normal for a king. Uh, like, and where does this even come from? Well, in Zechariah, uh, Old Testament minor prophet, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. It'll be up on the screen. I'll read it for you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It wasn't normal practice for a king to enter the city as king on a colt donkey. And so when Jesus goes, tells them, get the colt donkey, bring it here, he sits upon it and he comes into the city, he's fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. This very familiar, known prophecy to the Israelites that the coming king who would establish the kingdom of Israel on which he would be the king of, from the line of David whose kingdom will never end would ride into the city as king on a young colt donkey. So this isn't random. It's a clue as to who Jesus is. That he's the promised king who would ride into the city on a donkey. A young, full donkey. Not only that, but we see the actions of the people. That the actions of the people are a sign or a little clue as to what's going on here. Because there's another point in, and this is it's only recorded once in, uh, in the Old Testament, but it was a common held practice when a king would first time enter the city as king, enter to rule as king, uh, the people would do this very thing where they lay down branches and they lay down their cloaks in front of the king and he would walk on top of them, ushered into the city. This is a very common way that the Jewish people would install or uh, would... Uh, would bring the king into his rule. And we see this in 2 Kings 9, 11 and 12. It says, Thus, and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under, his, under him, or put it under him, and on the bare steps, and they blew trumpets and proclaimed, Jehu is king. 
It was a common regular practice in the Jewish culture when a king was anointed as king and he entered into rule that cloaks were thrown down in front of him as he took his steps. It's like the people lay down the red carpet for the king. It was a common practice. And so this wasn't something that the people just did whenever a celebrity came into town. This is an action done and reserved for kings. And so when the people lay down their cloaks in front of Jesus and the branches from the trees in the fields, they're signaling something. That Jesus is the King. The King. But we also see this in their words. Their words also show or are a sign and clue to Jesus being this promised Messiah King. And you see the people say, Hosanna. The word Hosanna, uh, in English, again, it's one word, but in Hebrew it means save us, help us. That's what it means. It's a prayer for God to save It's a crying out, oh God, please save us. And it comes directly from the Bible. They're quoting a psalm that the people would sing in their distress for the Lord to rescue and save them from Psalm 118. It says this in Psalm 118.25. Save us, which in English it just says save us, but in Hebrew it says the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, we bless you from the house of the Lord. That the people echo this cry out to God to save them from oppression, screaming Hosanna, cluing into God's future provision for a king that would come to deliver his people from captivity and to establish his kingdom forever. But not just any kingdom, the kingdom of David. In Ezekiel 37, I'm not going to read this one, I'll just kind of fill us in the gap. So in Ezekiel, there's some really interesting things that happen. The kingdoms are destroyed. The people go into captivity to Assyria and Babylon. Eventually that becomes Persia and you get Daniel and all those stories. But in Ezekiel, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is led out in mourning and grief to the east side of the city of Jerusalem. And he sees in a vision the, the presence of the Lord rise up out of the temple and go east over the Mount of Olives towards Bethany and Bethpage. It rises and goes that way in a symbolic, really kind of weird, ornate, like wheels going in every direction and eyes and all this kind of weird stuff. Yeah. So he sees the, the glory and presence of the Lord go east over the Mount of Olives to, toward Babylon, which is a weird moment with all kinds of reasons and significance that the, the presence of the Lord left his dwelling place and it actually went the direction that his people went, to Babylon. Um, but in this moment, the Lord speaks to Ezekiel and he tells him that he will raise up David, his servant, and David will rule over his people in this city with the presence of the Lord in the temple forever. It says this in Ezekiel 37, 24 to 27, if you want to read it later. All of these things that take place, where they're declaring, where the people say in these verses, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Clue us into this truth. Jesus is the king, not just a king. And by the king, he is the promised king who would rule over God's people forever and ever. He's the king that would come from the lineage of David, unlike any other king. That he's the king who, very cool symbolic thing happening here, the presence of God leaves east over the Mount of Olives, through Bethany, through Bethpage. And how does Jesus, the fullness of God dwelling, enter? From Bethany to Bethpage, from the Mount of Olives into the city. And where does he go? I get chills when I think about this. To the temple. That you see the exact reverse order of the presence of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel, returning to the temple as the king. You see, Jesus is revealing something. In this moment, he's pulling back the curtains a little bit and making his true identity and self known. He's displaying in the actions of these people, in the actions of sitting on this, coat, this, uh, on this colt, in the words of these people, he's letting them sing, declare, shout, and act 
as the people ushering the king and the presence of God back into the city of the king, where he would come and rule and reign. All this reminding us this, God is faithful. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping, faithful God. That he promised the king would come, and he fulfilled his promise. And he did it in a really beautiful way that shows not just a king coming into a city, but the reestablishment of his presence in the temple even, that Jesus goes there. So the first thing we see here about this king, the King Jesus, is that he's the promised king. But he's not just the promised king, he's a humble king. When we look at the way that Jesus enters the city as king, it's really unique. Like I said earlier, as we were unpacking the way that the president would travel, uh, another illustration I thought of, and I'm going to try not to chase this rabbit too far, is like, anybody seen uh, any of the Aladdin movies, whether you want to go with the new one or the old one? How does Aladdin, as Prince uh, Ali, yeah, and I was like, oh, I'm going to butcher this. Like, <laughs> how does he enter the city? It's this like massive entourage of parade and song and dance, and somehow it's all made out of magic. And like, uh, like it's this super ornate, super catchy dancing and camels made of gold and all this crazy stuff. It's this picture of a king or a prince in that day entering a city. But even uh, even in Jerusalem. A king didn't enter the city like Jesus just entered the city. See, kings didn't ride on donkeys. They definitely didn't ride on baby donkeys. They rode on horses. Because horses were a symbol of power and strength, of might. And not only any horse, but the perfect horse. Decorated in ornate decoration. And a horse that was reserved for the king and only the king. With an entourage of other soldiers entering, maybe some trumpets blowing as he enters the city. Think about David when he comes back from defeating Goliath and the the people are shouting and blowing trumpets and saying, Saul slays thousands and David slays ten thousands. The king who's anointed, who's not yet king yet, uh, who comes into the city with this majestic horse riding entourage. I mean, Jesus is going to ride on a horse one day in a coat covered in blood. It's going to happen one day. But when he enters the city as the king for the first time, it's a much more humble display of the kind of king he is. He didn't ride in on a horse. There wasn't some massive uh, go-before entourage of protection detail and all this stuff. No. Jesus enters the city of the king as the promised king, humble. And it communicates that. It communicates the kind of king Jesus is. He's a humble king. There's a moment, uh, I, the first time I ever had the opportunity to vote uh, in a presidential election was when I was in college, and it was when Obama was first elected into office. And, and there was something, and I, this may have happened every single presidency, presidency whatever, in the past. Um, and I just, as a kid, was totally oblivious or not alive for. Um, but uh, Obama, when he was elected uh, in 2009, he did something really interesting. Something that caught a lot of the media and the world's attention. And it wasn't a policy he passed or a law or something he vetoed or something he stopped doing or somebody he nominated to do something. He went somewhere that seemed quite unfitting or at least unpresidential for a president. And not in a, like, bad way. He went to five guys. Anybody remember this? No, just me? I just learned about five guys when this happened. So maybe I'm just, like, locked in my memory to never go away. But he went to five guys. And he didn't just like stop outside with his entourage and send someone else in. He went in to five guys with his crew and he ordered at the counter like a normal person would order and he got burgers for all of his people and he left and, and it was this whole, whole deal. But it communicated something about him. It communicated or it was intended to communicate something about the kind of president that he wanted to be or at the very least wanted people to see him to be. And I don't really care about your opinions across the board on that. But it did communicate something. In similar form, when Jesus enters the city of the king, the way that he enters the city uh, as that king, it shows us something about the kind of king that he is. 
that he's a humble king. And specifically, his humility displayed in two forms. That he's an approachable, humble king. That he's an approachable, humble king. Jesus isn't a king that we should cower in fear before or run away in his presence. But Jesus is gentle and lowly. And he welcomes the needy and broken. Not just the perfect, well-dressed and upright. Sometimes in spite of the well-dressed, upright. This is what Matthew 11 Jesus says this in verse 28. The king's words, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Massive words there. Not rest for your bodies. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is an approachable, humble king, and he invites us to come to him. Broken, weak, incapable, incompetent, struggling, dirty, messy people who need rest for our souls. And guess what he offers? Rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. See, Jesus is a humble king, an approachable king, but he's also a king whose kingdom is for everyone. That in his humility, his kingdom is for the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. That there's no one in whom Jesus will not welcome into his kingdom. So much that he says this in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are the clean, upright, morally obedient. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The words poor in spirit here communicate a person who knows that they have no righteousness to offer. That they are empty of righteousness. And they come humbly to Him, needy and broken. That's whose kingdom this is. That's who's welcome in the kingdom of Jesus. Those who are broken and needy and know it. It's for everyone. Jesus has come for you as that king. He tells the Pharisees this. This is in Luke 5, 30. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Which is not just like a casual job. That's like the most despicable, deplorable of peoples. Why do you eat and drink with them? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what does Jesus say at the very beginning of his, his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is a humble king who enters the city in such a way that displays his humility and his open harms to the sick, the broken, the needy. So today, will you come to him? Humble, empty in spirit, sinners. Come to Him for rest for your soul. Come to Him to make you new, to cleanse your heart. Jesus is the humble King. But He's not just the humble King. And here we also see some symbols and aspects of this passage that echo this part. That Jesus is the sacrificial King. That he's the sacrificial king. You see, in the Jewish culture and day, unused animals were reserved for something specific. See, Jesus says, go and get the colt that has never been ridden, right? That's something important going on here. See, see, animals that were 
uh, unridden or, or not used for labor or work were reserved for a specific future kind of work, a sacred work, specifically worship. See, this donkey may very well have been, if not reserved for, was available to be used for temple work. And so when Jesus rides in on a donkey colt that has never been ridden, it's an act of worship. A symbolic act of worship that this animal's currently being used as an aspect of worship and sacrifice to our good God. Unused animals like donkeys, like these, were reserved and set aside exclusively for temple worship. And where does Jesus ride this donkey? Right into the temple, or at least to the doors. Symbolizing and cluing us into the way in which he would step into his role as king. As a sacrificial king. See, when Jesus entered the city, he didn't go to the governor's house. He didn't go to the palace. He didn't go to the religious leaders. He went to the temple on a donkey reserved for worship as a symbol and sign that he came to be sacrificed as king. And in his sacrifice, laying his life down as a sacrifice, crucified on the cross just a few days later, paying the punishment for sin, buried in a tomb and arose from the dead, purchasing eternal life for all those who believe with His blood, securing it in His resurrection, that He willingly sacrificed Himself to pay for your sin and mine. And this unused donkey clues us into the kind of king He is. He's a king who came to worship and to worship the Lord by sacrificing himself. And guess what? As that sacrificial king, he extends grace to all who humbly come to him and ask for forgiveness and eternal life. So how are you going to respond to King Jesus? To this truth, this reality that Jesus is king, how are you going to respond today? We have the opportunity before you to reject him as king, to ignore him as king, and receive him as king. See, submitting to Jesus as king begins at the moment of salvation when you first believe in him as the promised king who came to die in your place so that you might live. So today, do you believe that Jesus came as the king to die in your place, to forgive or provide forgiveness of sin from the wrath of God, and, uh, and uh, to save you from the wrath of God. Are you going to believe that today? My encouragement to you today is that you would, if you don't. That you would believe that He came as a king to save. Secondly, I want us to think in this regard. Jesus is the king, and if you've put your faith and trust in him, he is your king. It starts at belief, but our lives look like living under him as king. It, which living under Jesus as your king means ongoing submission to him in all of your life. He welcomes all in to follow him and believe, and he, he, he leads us into the fullness of life and joy but Jesus being king, or the word Lord, which means master, doesn't mean king over selected areas of my life that I'm comfortable with him rearranging according to his will. I'll say that again. Jesus being king and Lord doesn't mean that he has lordship over selected areas of my life that I'm comfortable with him rearranging according to his will. Jesus being King and Lord means all of your life. So we typically are cool with submitting to Jesus as King 
receiving him as king over areas of our life until it begins to cost. Until it begins to cost us socially. Until it begins to cost us comforts and security. You see, sin oftentimes is used as a means of trying to provide comfort for the unrest of our souls. Do we pick and choose when Jesus is king where we want to agree and disagree, where we want to follow and where we don't want to follow? Do we pick and choose based on what's culturally appropriate nowadays? What's true according to Jesus or not? Here's one way this typically functions in our lives. Uh, I believe the gospel. Jesus is my king. He's provided for me eternal life. He's my Lord and Savior. And I will do all that he commands me if in my view it seems satisfying, good, pleasing, morally right, etc. But only if in my view of it, it will be good. So we only obey where it seems to be good to us to obey. Where we only give him free rule and reign to rearrange the furniture of your inner soul as he seems fit, as long as it doesn't disrupt things for you too much. So for you who've put your faith and trust in Jesus, I ask, how are you not living in full submission of Jesus right now in your life? To be specific, what are you not letting Jesus into? to be king over. What are you saying, Jesus? No, this thing that I like to do, you stay out of. You see, Jesus is the king. And he welcomes all to come to him and believe and enjoy him as king and be a part of his kingdom. And if you've believed that, the Holy Spirit, I pray, is at work in us to bring to light areas of our lives where we are not living under the kingship of Jesus and submission to Him. He is a good king. And there's no harm in us saying, discomfort? Yeah, because we love sin sometimes. There's no harm in Jesus towards you to say, have your way with every single corner and aspect of my life, Jesus. And maybe the step for us this morning is this, to confess and repent and come to Him. Own where we have lived as King instead of Him. And to invite Him to rule and reign in that particular space of your life. As husband, as wife, in your job, in your sexuality, in your addictions, in your mental struggles, to let Jesus be king.